You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, at this point in the book of Acts, we've seen the church rapidly expand in its earliest days. Christ has, of course, ascended. The Holy Spirit has, of course, been poured out upon the church in Acts chapter 2. And there in Jerusalem, thousands of Jews have given their lives to Jesus Christ. And as the church developed, Luke recorded a couple of different times the hyper-generosity that existed uh, there in the church. The people were leaning upon one another, depending upon one another, giving to one another. It was a special and unique time in the life of this infant church. Now, in Acts chapter 5, Luke is going to record uh, what looked to be an act of generosity. Uh, He ended chapter 4, or we concluded chapter 4, by noticing an example of generosity in the positive. Uh, The man uh, Barnabas, he sold uh, some land on Cyprus and gave the proceeds uh, to the body of Christ, to the church. But here, we're going to have a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira appear to do something similar, yet there was an insidiousness in their act that, if allowed to go unchecked, would have spread into the church like leaven in bread and would have ultimately killed the body of Christ. And so, God is actually going to kill Ananias and Sapphira in judgment before their act has a chance to spread and actually effectively kill uh, the church. Jesus said to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so here in this early moment in the church's life, God is going to defend his church against the insidious error of hypocrisy. So it goes like this in verse 1. It says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, a couple of things are important uh, to, to note here in Luke's description of what is happening. First of all, you have this man named Ananias, and along with his wife, Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And Sapphira was in the know when Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Uh, He didn't bring everything, but gave only part of the proceeds uh, to the church by laying it at the apostles' feet. Now, one of the things that is important to note is that Peter tells the man that he didn't even have to give part of the proceeds. Uh, He says, well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? 
In other words, uh, they did not have to, they were not compelled by Peter to give even anything. It all belonged uh, to them. And this is important because it helps us understand that Ananias and Sapphira were not guilty of the sin of refusing to give everything. They were guilty of the sin of pretending to give everything when actually they'd given only a portion. Uh, Peter calls it this. He says, you have, verse 3, lied to the Holy Spirit. And then again in verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. Uh, This is actually an interesting statement, which helps us with the doctrine of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Of course, not the only place, but just an example of the thinking of the early believers. The Holy Spirit, he had lied to the Holy Spirit, which meant that he'd not lied to man, but he had lied to God. Now, when Ananias, verse 5, heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So you have these younger men in the church, and they're operating in a servant kind of role and capacity. And here, I'm sure they got more than they bargained for on that particular day. They came in and they had to wrap Ananias up and, and of course, respect for his body. They took him out immediately and buried him. After an interval, Luke records, of about three hours, verse 7, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately, verse 10, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, This, of course, is not how God always responds to hypocrisy. Uh, In other words, we don't see God, even in our modern time, or even through the rest of the book of Acts, in the early days of the church, striking with death every person that was engaged in a hypocritical act. But this act was sort of a first act of sorts. And because it was that first great act of hypocrisy that struck this pure and infant church, it's as if God, through responding this way the first time, allows us to understand what his heart and his attitude is concerning hypocrisy every time. Uh, He might not strike in this kind of way every time, but he hates hypocrisy every time. And, and and what it helps us also understand is not just the attitude of God about hypocrisy, but the severity of the problem of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is an absolutely lethal sin because it creates a disconnect between what we say we are and who we actually are. And that disconnect is where all power evaporates. All effectiveness, all attractiveness evaporates in that gap between what we claim and what we 
are. And of course, God knows that. God saw that. And so in a church that had many martyrs, before anyone was martyred, someone died for hypocrisy. And so Ananias and Sapphira, because of their desire to look holy, their desire to look spiritual, their desire to look sacrificial, went to their graves for that crime and sin. You know, it's interesting when Jesus talked in Matthew chapter 6 about doing our good works before our Father in heaven. You know, not letting our right hand know what our left hand is doing. He talked about three great areas of living out our spirituality. I I think that they are symbolic of all ways that we live out our spirituality because one of them, of the three, is related to our relationship with man, the the giving of alms. A second one is related to our relationship with God, our prayer lives. And then a third one is related to, in a sense, our relationship with ourselves, our own body, uh, because he talks about fasting. And of course, We have a bigger relationship with our own body than just in fasting and a bigger relationship with God than just and only in prayer. And we have a bigger relationship with the world itself and other people than just the giving of alms. But in all of them, the Lord communicated that if we did these things in order to be seen by men, then we would have our reward. But that if we did them, Uh, for God, for the Father, and had a note or a lack of self-advertisement attached to them, then our Father who sees in secret will reward us openly. And, you know, when you think about the temptation toward hypocrisy there in the early church and also there in Matthew chapter 6, what you have to confess is that these are sins that are exclusive to the body of Christ. They're exclusive to God's people. If you're down hanging out with a bunch of people who are anti-Christ, anti-Christian, anti-the gospel, there isn't as much of a temptation to, you know, pray in a certain way that makes you sound spiritual. No, these are church sins. And here, this church sin of hypocrisy entered into uh, Ananias and Sapphira, entered into the church, and the Lord did something very swift about it. And, you know, we might see it as severe, the, uh, God taking their lives for this act, but I see it as his mercy. I think he saved many more lives by his great act. Uh, who knows what that hypocrisy would have done? Who knows how much it would have slowed down the advance of the gospel, how much it would have cancered and crippled the church, and how many people would not have been able to hear of the grace of God because of hypocrisy entering into the church. And so I think by keeping the church clean, God was actually valuing human life in a powerful way. Now, of course, the result of this kind of moment, verse 11, is that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is not a paranoia, but a healthy fear, a real reverence and respect for God. And, you know, the modern church would do well to meditate on passages like these in order to 
set their hearts afresh upon the desire of God for personal holiness amongst the members of the body of Christ. You know, God is holy. God is set apart. He's different. He's clean. He's pure. He's righteous. And, of course, the cost of imputing righteousness to our account was the blood of Jesus Christ. In order for us to be made holy, like God is holy, Jesus Christ had to be slaughtered. He had to shed his blood. So what that tells us is that the price over or for our sin was a severe price. And that should help us to have a a real sobriety about sin. You know, none of us are expecting, and the Bible isn't doesn't teach us to anticipate that on this side of eternity we will live in sinless perfection. No, we're always going to be going through the process of discovering our own hearts and continuing to grow and be transformed. But when a person is operating in known and unrepentant, undeclared, unconfessed sin, uh, they are inviting unholiness into their lives. And when that is occurring, that is an entirely unchristian, anti-Christ perspective to have. Uh, the, the believer longs for and wants to live a holy life that they might honor God uh, with all of their bodies. You, you might remember Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul tells us that the mission statement of the Christian life is that we would give our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. So what I want more than anything is my body for God's glory. And that is a pursuit of holiness in so many ways. All right, so the fear of God falls upon the church. Now in verse 12, Luke continues and says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, when Luke records that, the question, of course, is why wouldn't people dare to join them? And perhaps you have here at, at this moment, you know, real purity in the church because potentially because of the death of Ananias and Sapphira. But also it could just be that in those days there was really not the concept of a mixed multitude uh, there in the church. It wasn't, Christianity wasn't like a popular thing for people to engage in. And, and of course, it didn't have time to become a cultural thing that people would embrace. And, and we might be able to imagine that in our modern world when you imagine maybe a culture or a county or a state or a city that has previously been saturated with Christianity. And then you have people growing up in that environment who maybe are not believers per se in the gospel message. They've yet to really confess their sin and cry out to God. However, they identify as Christian. There was none of that here in uh, Acts chapter five. It says none of the rest dared join them But there was a respect uh, amongst the people for the church. It says, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, verse 14, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least 
his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, Peter, of course, here is working something that is very out of the ordinary, and that's, of course, why Luke records it for us. This was no everyday experience there in the early church. And as Peter was walking through Jerusalem, people would lay out the sick and hoping that at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And apparently the assumption was that if the shadow touched them, they might actually uh, be healed. Now, Peter would have been the first to know that this was not his own doing, that this was not his own power, that he was simply an instrument in God's hands at this particular moment. But what Luke is helping us to understand is that incredible power is being released upon the church. Now, in verse 17, we go on and we come to the second apostolic arrest, the second time that they are arrested for preaching and teaching. It says in verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So Luke here gives us the motive. Uh, Perhaps this was mostly a Sadducean jealousy in the sense that the Sadducees Oh, they had lots of authority in that time and in that culture and were uh, accepted by the Roman authorities. And now as the church is gaining traction, they may have seen some of their power slipping through their fingers. And so what it tells us is that they were filled with jealousy. They were jealous of the influence that the church had. But verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So, of course, they've been arrested by these religious leaders. And now an angel comes and, and opens the door. Now, this is this is one of three prison door openings uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, here with all of the apostles uh, and then uh, later on in chapter uh, 12 with Peter, and then later in Philippi with Paul and Silas. And the idea here is that miraculously, God is allowing them to leave, and he tells them to go preach the words of this life. And the message is very obvious. It's that God is saying, nothing will ultimately stop my message. This is an unstoppable message. And you know, here we are a couple thousand years after this little episode, and we are experiencing, even here on earth, the continual preaching and expansion of God's gospel and his kingdom. And God's, you know, saying here, nothing can stop my message. This is an unstoppable message. Uh, Paul prayed or asked for prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3 when he said, Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. And God is answering that specific prayer 
right here in verse 19 and 20. An angel of the Lord opens the doors and tells him to go into the temple and to speak to all the people the words of this life. And so, uh, in, in other words, this is an unstoppable message. Here's an open door for you to go and preach it. Well, it says in verse 21, and, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So, uh, again, there's this sort of a comical you know, event. Uh, they go in, the, the, the councils gathered, all the senate of the people of Israel are gathered together. And at that moment, they say, look, we, we couldn't even find them. Uh, and so this is just a kind of a, a surprising turn of events for the religious leaders. Now, we should notice that God asked the apostles to do something that was very costly. At daybreak, they would go out in public to the temple area and they would preach there. And of course, this would lead to a further confrontation. And so in verse 24, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. There they are, you know, trying to figure out who released them. And they hear now that the very group that they'd arrested the night before is in the temple and they're preaching. And of course, we're seeing all kinds of contrasts in this story. The, the council gathered to sentence prisoners that they didn't have. The guards were carefully guarding prison cells that were not full. And the council wondered where the apostles were when they were in the temple. Then the captain, verse 26, with the officers, went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Uh, likely not the Christians, uh, although if they did fear that, it would have been an unfounded fear, uh, but probably a fear of the general populace who appreciated the Christians at this point, and they were saw them in a favorable light. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Again, the, the name that Luke has been referring to uh, so far throughout the book of Acts. And they said, you've, we told you not to teach in this name, but yet you've done it and you're bringing this man's blood upon us. This, of course, name that they're referring to is the name of Christ. Uh, but they didn't want to say Jesus' name, and they didn't want to acknowledge the name of Christ. And so here we see a people who are not interested in the truth, but in preserving their position. Uh, they've just been miraculously set free, these apostles, but the religious leaders are not curious about that event. They're interested exclusively in maintaining the position that they had uh, there in Israel. But Peter, verse 29, and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, this is a very short little statement from Peter and all the apostles. It's very similar to what we already saw in Acts chapter 4, when they say we must obey God rather than men. Now, uh, this, of course, has been used uh, many times appropriately by Christians over the years in our assessment of when to obey the governing authorities and when to uh, exercise civil disobedience or to disobey the governing authorities. Uh, Paul talked to us about this in Romans chapter 13, and so did Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, here we're, we learn from Peter's words and also from Paul's in Romans 13, that the church is to be a civilly, a civil, is to exercise civil obedience before the uh, governmental authorities. And now there will be times where the government asks us to disobey God. And in that moment, we must obey God rather than men. But we should be careful not to apply uh, that concept too broadly. You know, in other words, saying, look, I, I don't think that God wants me to pay taxes, so I'm going to disobey the, the governmental authorities in order to obey God. No, it seems that the exceptions to obeying the governmental authorities would be uh, very narrow in nature. There were, they would be few in nature rather than broad. And here, uh, it had much to do with the laying down of life and the expansion of the gospel by you know preaching the gospel message. He says, we must obey God rather than men. Peter uh, immediately goes after them by preaching the gospel afresh. You hung him on a tree, which is another phrase for uh, crucifixion, and would point these religious leaders back to Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, where the man who was cursed would be hung on a tree. And so Peter is trying to point out, look, the curse of the law was put upon Christ when you put him upon the cross. So when they heard this, verse 33, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So uh, here now they're going to have a little meeting and we're introduced into this man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was actually the teacher of Saul of Tarsus and uh, led a, a more liberal group of the Pharisees. And what he's going to do now is he's going to be used by God to intercede for the church, much like Caiaphas after Lazarus's resurrection in John chapter 11, he is going to unknowingly stand up for the church. 
It says, when he said to them, verse 35, or Andy said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So Gamaliel is doing is he's pointing out two examples from their recent history, a time when uh, a man named Thutis had 400 insurrectionists and eventually came to nothing, and a time when a man named Judas the Galilean uh, led a movement on revolt and eventually came to nothing. So, verse 38, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This is powerful uh, Gamaliel is not a believer, but this this is just a statement of his. If it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. Now, I don't think that this was an honest position. They already uh, had ample evidence, but still there's this rejection uh, in their hearts. Uh, they took Gamaliel's advice, and so here you have a non-believer even a brutal one, perhaps, using their authority for God's purposes, like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Artaxerxes and at times even Caesar. And so you you have a, a man who's not a believer being used by God because he's st- uh, leading and, and guiding their hearts like he's guiding a stream. And so they take these men, the apostles, and they beat them. And they left the presence of the council. Notice this, verse 41 rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. How powerful it would be for us to have an attitude on our hearts that when we suffer, that there'd be a rejoicing, that we are suffering a little bit with the Lord. And then specifically, if we suffer for the kingdom, for the gospel, for the Lord. Here to say, man, how beautiful. We've been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.